0: This episode is brought to you by Shutterfly. We are here because in Minneapolis and in cities across the United States, it is clear that our system of policing is not keeping our communities safe. Our efforts at incremental reform have failed. Period.
1: This week, a majority of the Minneapolis City Council did something Pretty surprising.
0: Our commitment is to end our city's toxic relationship with the Minneapolis Police Department. To end policing as we know it. And to recreate systems of public safety that actually keep us safe.
1: It announced plans to dismantle the city's police department. Keep in mind that this is the same city that's been under a ton of pressure following the death of George Floyd on May 25th. That's when a then-police officer named Derek Chauvin pinned George Floyd down with a knee on his neck for nearly nine minutes. He's since been charged with second-degree murder and second-degree manslaughter. According to the most recent data in 2018, the Minneapolis PD had a record high number of new police misconduct complaints. Now, after a series of protests both at home and around the world, Local officials in Minneapolis are saying no more. Democracy looks like.
2: this is what democracy looks like.
1: So, how do you dismantle the police department of a city like Minneapolis? That part is still TBD. But the idea of doing this didn't come from thin air. And the more people hit the streets in protest, and the more we see videos of police responding to those protests violently the more we've heard calls that the way the police works in this country needs to change. So today, we're going to walk you through what some of those reforms could be. Everything from federal bans on chokeholds to abolishing police departments. That's coming up on this week's Skim This. So, like we said... The protests that began after the death of George Floyd have since evolved into broader protests over police brutality and racial bias. Systemic racism is something that impacts all parts of the country and the U.S. government, but particularly U.S. policing. Experts say institutional racism within American law enforcement has existed for centuries, dating back to the 1700s when local police forces conducted slave patrols, intending to preserve the slave system and prevent slaves from literally revolting. Those patrols are considered part of the origins of American policing. Fast forward to this week in Washington, D.C., when Democratic lawmakers suggested some reforms. Here's Speaker Nancy Pelosi listing a few of them
2: will demilitarize the police by limiting the transfer of military weaponry to state and local police departments. It will combat police brutality by requiring body and dashboard cameras, banning chokeholds, no-knock warrants in drug cases, and and end racial profiling.
1: The bill also creates a national registry of misconduct by law enforcement officers, something we talked about on the show last week. A lack of data for things like this has made it harder to hold police accountable. Some of these changes have been implemented to some extent in cities and states around the country. But this legislation, if signed, would make it easier for the federal government to prosecute police misconduct. It would still have to pass the Republican-led Senate and get signed by the president. House and Senate Republicans are both working on their own versions of police reform right now too. Another thing the federal government could do is start pushing for consent decrees. That's where the Justice Department investigates local police departments that come under scrutiny for use of force and bias, and then lays out a series of steps they need to take to fix things under a court order. The Obama administration entered into 19 agreements with local PDs to do things like teaching police how to de-escalate and how to intervene if one of their own is doing something wrong. The former head of the Civil Rights Division under the DOJ, Vanita Gupta, says that's something the federal government could start doing right now if it wanted to. But she told PBS last week that under the Trump administration,
2: They've gutted the use of
1: consent decrees as a tool that the Civil Rights Division has to remediate systemic issues. You might have also seen a campaign on your Instagram feed called 8 Can't Wait which includes things like chokehold bans and bans on shooting for moving cars. A police reform group called Campaign Zero created it and is encouraging local PDs and city councils to take those steps right now. So those are some immediate responses that cities and police departments could adopt. But some argue that giving police more money for things like training isn't the solution. That instead, we need to shift focus and defund the police. So what does that mean? We called up Linda Garcia to find out. I think it means a lot of different things for different folks. Garcia is the director of the policing campaign at the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. That's a coalition of hundreds of civil rights groups that work to achieve social justice through things like police reform. Garcia's group doesn't speak on behalf of communities around the country who all have different demands depending on where they live, but she walked us through what many are calling for. So on one end of the spectrum, defunding the police means shifting resources to other agencies and community programs to play a stronger role in building and maintaining public safety. Basically, put the money you would have paid the police social services that would, in turn, address some of the problems police were being called to handle. Garcia gave a few examples. One of the primary um, calls for service
0: in our, and interactions that police officers have are with people in mental health crises. And I'll say that even when you talk to law enforcement, they'll agree with this. They're not the folks that should be responding to people with needs for mental health services and that they should be medical professionals, social service
1: workers, those types of services that should really be handling these incidents or or situations. Garcia points out that enhanced youth programs could also replace school resource officers with school psychologists and social workers, rather than having police handle disciplinary issues. Some cities have already tried this approach. For example, if you were to dial 911 in Austin, Texas, you don't get the police. You get an operator who then decides whether you need an officer, medic, or firefighter. And this week, New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio said he's also going to be shifting some police funding. Right now, the NYPD receives more than 6% of New York City's yearly budget. Now, Mayor Bill de Blasio said he would move some of that money toward youth and social services. TBD on how much? Los Angeles announced that it's doing something similar, but as you might expect, there's concern about what reducing money for police departments actually means for crime. The L.A. Police Union called the budget cut the, quote, quickest way to make our neighborhoods more dangerous. The other reason you're hearing about this a lot right now and why cities are quick to make these calls is because it's budget season in many cities. Yes, local governments, they're just like us. They like to stick to a budget, which for many begins on July 1st, the start of the fiscal year. And this year things are especially tight because of COVID-19. And so some activists are saying, hey, since you're worried about the budget right now, why not look at that police line item and make some cuts? So when you hear people call to defund the police, many are saying, let's shift resources. But some are arguing that their towns should go further and move toward abolishing the police entirely. Rethink the entire institution of policing. You might remember our guest last week. Kimberly Burke for the Center for Policing Equity. She explained how abolition means rethinking how we view public safety.
0: I think that what abolition, police abolition, forces us to reckon with is that when we, we can't arrest our way out of these deeply rooted social problems. We cannot punish our way out of injustice. We cannot, we cannot um, imprison our way to equity and equality, right? Only these pro-social positive interventions are going to achieve that.
1: So when you hear people call to defund the police, there's actually a range of options there. But while city council members in Minneapolis are moving to dismantle the police, the details are still unclear. And that doesn't necessarily mean they're moving toward getting rid of the police entirely. In 2013, for example, Camden, New Jersey dismantled its police force and replaced it with more officers from shared county services to focus on community policing. In Minneapolis, a city charter makes clear that there needs to be some kind of police force to protect the population. The question now is, what will it look like? So what's the skim? As protests across the country continue, some local governments are taking a look at their police departments and deciding whether to make cuts or to dismantle their police departments entirely. Some police chiefs and unions are warning that cutting back funding for police could lead to higher crime rates. The Washington, D.C. police chief has warned that underfunding could even contribute to excessive force. Advocates for defunding or even abolishing the police argue that if those funds were put towards social services, that could resolve many issues police officers were being called upon to fix. And that the way we view public safety in this country needs to change. If you want to learn more, we have a guide on what it means to defund the police at the skimcom world. Racial bias is something that doesn't just impact policing. It impacts all sorts of institutions, including housing, academia, and healthcare, Which is part of why the protests are having such a big impact right now. More on that after the break. Father's Day is right around the corner. And even if you can't celebrate in person this year, he deserves something special. Shutterfly's photo books are the perfect way to say you're the best from afar. Just pick the photos you want to use and pick your design. Or let their team of experts design it for you. Head to Shutterfly.com to get started.
2: Concerns about two crises in America unfolding at the same time. Is this going to exacerbate a spike in cases? With more than 1.7 million confirmed COVID-19 cases in the U.S., the numbers continue to rise. But
1: so do the crowds. For weeks, Americans were told to stay inside and stay home because of one virus, COVID-19. But in the wake of George Floyd's death, thousands have left their homes to gather, mourn, and call for accountability and reform when it comes to another virus, racism in the US. You might remember the country's top infectious disease expert, Dr. Anthony Fauci from the White House Coronavirus Task Force. Last week, he spoke to the Washington DC radio station, WTOP, and said he's concerned.
2: It's a perfect setup for further spread of the virus in the sense of creating these blips, which might turn into some surges.
1: Fauci says the protests around the country could pose a risk of spreading COVID-19.
2: I'm not criticizing that, but I'm saying what it's gonna be leading to is the likelihood uh, that you might have uh, situations where you would force the spread of infection. Keep
1: in mind, COVID-19 can spread through respiratory droplets. So things like chanting, singing, shouting, and talking in close quarters could be risky. But researchers say police tactics can also cause the virus to spread. Police officers in cities like Seattle, Portland, and Washington, D.C. are reported to have used tear gas to disperse protesters. Tear gas can cause people to cough. So if someone with COVID-19 comes into contact with tear gas and they cough, those particles could spread the disease to others. Tear gas can also cause lung damage, which might make someone more likely to get a respiratory illness like COVID-19. And some law enforcement officials are also holding protesters who have been arrested in tightly packed jail cells and police vans, which can increase the risk of the virus spreading. While some experts like Dr. Fauci are concerned about infection, other health professionals are calling on police not to interfere with protests in the name of COVID-19. Last week, more than a thousand healthcare workers signed an open letter saying protests should not be shut down due to COVID 19 concerns. Here's Dr. Jamie Slaughter AC, a social epidemiologist and assistant professor at the University of Minnesota.
0: Well, I think one of the concerns that public health officials and, other, and specifically other epidemiologists um, may have is that those who are participating in protests. In relationship to police brutality or reimagining policing in America, they're worried that there may be a potential spike of uh, SARS-CoV-2 transmission um, among this group. And then, sort of twofolds is that the Black uh, Black Americans will be disproportionately affected um, in this sort of second wave.
1: So while the risk of COVID-19 transmission remains, health experts are saying that these protests are important to battling racism, which also impacts public health. And that's something that protesters are weighing each time they leave home. A second
0: point that's really important to think about when deciding whether or not to participate in protests uh, versus social distancing and the current pandemic, right, is what is the reason that you're wanting to participate in protesting? What is the cause that you, or the reason, that you are willing to put your health on the line? Is it because you want to get a haircut versus that you want to prevent Black lives brown lives from being ended over $20. So you have to sort of weigh social consequences that staying silent has. And I think that's sort of being lost in everything.
1: It's too soon to tell how protests will impact the spread of COVID-19. That's because it takes days or weeks to show signs of infection. There's also some argument as to whether tracking the impact of protests on COVID-19 infections, if even possible, is the right thing to do. In the meantime, there are a few ways health experts say you can protect yourself if you're going to protest. First, wear a mask or face covering. Also, bring hand sanitizer if you have some and use it. And remember, all together now, social distancing. And stay home if you aren't feeling well. If you're worried that you've contracted the virus, you may want to get tested. Some local officials are encouraging protesters to get a COVID test and are opening up dedicated testing centers for demonstrators. But remember, as we're keeping an eye out for future outbreaks, it's not just protests that are causing people to leave home. All 50 states have started to reopen businesses and gathering places. That means more people are going back to work in major cities like New York and Los Angeles, which were once hotspots for the virus. It's still TBD how these gatherings will affect the spread of the virus, but the protests themselves also bring attention to issues that experts say impact public health, like systemic racism. COVID-19 has had a disproportionate impact on communities of color. Data shows that Black Americans are being hospitalized at a higher rate and dying at a higher rate than white people. But threats to the health of Black Americans go beyond the virus. Minorities in the US face discrimination in healthcare treatment, reduced access to food, and unsafe working conditions, among other issues. Experts, including Dr. Slaughter Ac, say these can be attributed to racial inequality.
0: Racism is a public health issue and it's a public health issue because many of the health disparities that we recognize in this country and the health inequities that we are seeing, the root cause is systemic racism. So if you want to improve or minimize health disparities and create equity in health outcomes, then you have to address the root cause or that fundamental cause that's creating the difference, the disparity.
1: Before we go, we want to tell you about something that's been getting a lot of attention.
2: So I've created this for you um, because in order to stand with us and people that look like me, you have to be educated on issues that pertain to me and fully educated so that you can fool the full level of pain, so that you can have full understanding. I, I fervently believe that if the white person is your problem, only the white person can be your solution.
1: That's Emmanuel Acho. He's a former NFL linebacker and soon-to-be co-host of Speak for Yourself on FS1. Last week, he launched Uncomfortable Conversations with a Black Man, an online series where he takes on, quote, conversations about race that many white people have never been able to have. On Instagram alone, his first episode has been viewed over 11 million times. And this week, The Skim talked to Emmanuel about being the host and creator of something that has gone very viral very fast.
2: So I just wanted to cure some of that racial ignorance, some of that racial insensitivity uh, with questions like, wait, why can't I say the N-word if a Black person can't? Um, why do you think white privilege exists? Why do you, Black people only care about white-on-Black crime, but not the much more prevalent Black-on-Black black crime? I was like, let me kindly let you into the lens of a Black man.
1: You see, Emmanuel's approach is all about educating in a safe space.
2: No one's helpless because we each have the responsibility to educate ourselves and then go educate our friend groups. When you see racial ignorance, when you see implicit bias, call it out. When you hear that friend say, you don't even talk like you're Black, call that out. Because that's to imply that sounding educated contradicts with what being Black is.
1: Emmanuel says that he hopes this will be the start of many episodes and that while many in our world can live in ignorance, he doesn't have that
2: luxury. And we in America, if we truly want to grow, if we truly want to be the land of the free, if we truly want to be great, we got to get a little uncomfortable.
1: You can catch his latest episode now on uncomfortablecondos.com or on social at Ocho. And you can catch more of our interview with him on Instagram, at theskim. And that's all for Skim This. We'll be back in your feed again next Friday. In the meantime, let us know what questions you have about what's going on in the news right now. You can email us at audio at or call and leave us a voicemail at 646-461-6370. Don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. For more Skim and to sign up for our daily newsletter, head on over to theskim.com.